Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month. This is Steve Anderson. It's no secret that a successful dentist and dental team understands that dentistry is all about relationships, team relationships, and relationships with patients. When it comes to relationship, there's, there's a lot for us to learn for application at home as well as at the office. Our Crown Council mentor this month is Dr. Dave Penner, a licensed clinical psychologist and the clinical director of the Gottman Institute. The Gottman Institute is known around the world for its groundbreaking research on relationships. Dr. Penner is the author of the Leader's Guide for Teaching the Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, which is based on years of experience teaching John Gottman's Seven Principles book. He's trained therapists in the Gottman Method in North America, Asia, and Europe, and is the co-developer of the Gottman Seven Principles program. In his role as the clinical director, Dr. Pender oversees clinical aspects of the institute, including providing consultation to certified Gottman therapists and clinicians in training, selecting and training consultants for clinicians pursuing certification, training and supervising video reviewers who certify therapists in the Gottman method, overseeing quality control of new programs and products, training and supervising roving therapists at couples workshops, responding to quality concerns about therapists and consultants, and answering clinical questions. Dave has practiced for over 30 years as an individual and couples therapist, working in private practice, university, mental health, and hospital settings. With that, we welcome Dr. Dave Penner as this month's Crown Council Mentor of the Month. Dave, welcome. Great. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Steve. As I mentioned before we started, I am a big fan of your work and have been for many years. And as we talk today, uh, many of those that are listening will recognize your work and because of the groundbreaking uh, breakthroughs that you've made in relationships and things. They're going to hear some things that uh, will sound very familiar to them. So maybe we could start by you briefly explaining the research done by the Gottmans on relationships and what makes it unique from anything that's ever been done. Okay, great. Well, first of all, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Gottman's background because it's very relevant to what makes uh, him and his uh, research unique. So as you would expect, John is a very bright guy and graduated from college at the age of 20 with majors in physics and mathematics. And he went to graduate school at MIT in math and uh, finished his master's degree in math. But it turns out that his roommate there was a psychology major. And so they would talk about their classes and look at each other's books. And uh, Dr. Gottman said, you know, this is, uh, this is more interesting right now than, than mathematics is. So he, after he finished his master's, started all over again and went through and got another master's and a PhD in psychology. So he brings the rigor of a scientist and a mathematician to the study of relationships in a way that uh, very few, if any, have ever done uh, before. And his goal is to make uh, research on relationships just as rigorous as research in the medical community. 
And so that's what he's basically been doing for the last 40 years. He has looked at over 3,000 couples during this time span. Some of them are one-time only studies, and a number of them are longitudinal studies where he would follow the same couples for many years, like one of them went 20 years, just to see what happens to relationships, marriages over that span of time. So it's really this mathematical, scientific approach to looking at interaction between people that makes his work stand out. Um, Maybe you could um, talk about the one of the things I find fascinating about the research is the actual laboratory research that you've done and how you set that up. So it's not just based on personal opinion, but actually laboratory research on relationships. Can you share how that's set up? Sure. Well, there's very there's a lot of different ways that he did that. So I'll talk about one of them. Um, called it the uh, well, actually the British the BBC uh, called it the Love Lab. And it was uh, a studio apartment that he set up on the University of Washington Medical School campus overlooking a nice grassy field. And then there's a ship canal where boats go through from Lake Washington to Puget Sound. And he intended this to be like a bread and uh, and breakfast experience for couples. So he would invite couples to come typically on a Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. And there was no agenda. Just bring groceries to fix your own food in this apartment and just hang out and agree to be observed for 24 hours until Monday morning about 8 o'clock. So he uh, had uh, uh, video cameras mounted on the wall that would track them. There was a one-way mirror where his research associates would code their facial expressions and emotions uh, all day long until evening time. Uh, they had Holter monitors on, tracking three channels of electrocardiogram. And when they went into the uh, to the bathroom, there were little urine specimen cups uh, to take samples, looking at their stress hormones. And then when the uh, the experience was over, they went next door to the hospital and took their blood, looking at their immune system functioning. But other than that, it wow. would be like any other bed and breakfast experience. <laughs> so, you know, of course, um, people ask, well, wouldn't couples be – uh, nicer to each other, knowing they're uh, being observed. And, and they, they were uh, for, he says, about 45 minutes when they kind of forgot about all that and the newness were off. And some couples related to each other in a positive way. And some couples got into arguments and fights over you know, small things. Um, and the normal kind of stuff of life emerged over that 24-hour period. It actually took him 10 years to analyze the data from that study. And from that study, along with several other studies, he became able to predict which couples would get divorced and which couples would stay married with over a 90% accuracy rate. Uh, He did that in seven different studies. Uh, The first was retrospective. The the next six were actually predictive studies. And 
he says that the media made a big deal out of that ability because, as, as we know, predicting human behavior in just about any area is very difficult. It's you know, more or less the toss of a coin. But relationships, however, are much more stable than individual behavior. So the important thing is not that he can predict who's going to make it and who's not going to make it, but those qualities and behaviors that successful couples, happily married couples do. And then on the other hand, what are those behaviors that lead to relationship deterioration and meltdown and divorce? And, of course, you want to do what the satisfied, happy couples do and avoid doing what the distressed couples who later divorce do. And then the second uh, critical question is whether couples who exhibit those characteristics that would lead them towards divorce can turn it around and end up having successful relationships. And the answer is yes, uh, they can. So... From that, he developed a theory of what it takes to make relationships successful. Calls it the sound Which, relationship house. Yes. Very good. All right. So I want to talk about that. If I can go back to one question here. You just said that relationships are much more stable than behavior. Well, then can specific you explain, can you explain that? Then, indi- then individual behavior would be. So, for example, if you want to predict uh, which kids in the second grade are going to turn out to uh, end up in prison or be successful in the way our culture would define success, it's really hard to predict that kind of thing. Uh, that's what I mean by predicting uh, individual behavior or in the media these days with all these really unfortunate and sad shootings, you know, who's going to be one of those people down the road? I mean, there are some characteristics that they exhibit, but trying to predict specifically which person is going to do that is, is really difficult to do. Looking at relationships, on the other hand, uh, they are predictable by knowing what to look for uh, over time. Uh, He's able to predict which uh, trajectory they're on, the one towards health and positive relationships or the unfortunate trajectory towards deterioration and, uh, you know, dissolution of that relationship. All right, so let's talk about that first. Warning signs. I think you you all call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Is that right? In other words, what are the the signs that you look for that that are clear signs that a relationship's in trouble? Well, there are several. The four horsemen of the apocalypse is one of many. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse refers to four patterns of behavior that are predictive of kind of the end of the relationship, kind of like a biblical metaphor. The four horsemen of the apocalypse refer to the coming of the end of the world. So the first one of those is criticism. And criticism is when you make your complaint about someone in a personal way rather than making it about the behavior. So, for example, if I said to uh, my receptionist, uh, could you please 
file these papers before the end of the day. Um, and I noticed yesterday that these things were left out rather than put in the file cabinets. And I'd really appreciate if you have them filed uh, before you leave. That would actually be fine because I would be asking her to change her behavior in some way. But if I said to her, you are so lazy, you don't bother to pick up the papers and put it in the file cabinet, then I made it about her. Her, her character, her personality by calling her lazy. So the, the antidote to criticism is to bring the issue up in a gentle way and make it about the behavior, not the personality or the character of the person. Another way to be critical would be using you always or you never statements. You, know, you always leave this stuff a mess. You never do, you know, whatever behavior. Um, that, again, is more about that person's character rather than it is about the specific behavior you want them to change. So that would be the focus uh, rather than being critical. Contempt is the second horseman, and contempt is when one person puts themselves up on a higher plane looking down on the other person. It's like I'm, I'm better than you are in some way. You know, I'm neater, cleaner, more punctual, more thoughtful, more sensitive, and you're not, basically. Now, those things may be true, but it's the attitude with which one conveys that that would be contempt. Uh, contempt would also be um, being belligerent, uh, name-calling, yelling at somebody, uh, referring to them in demeaning terms. And there actually is a cross-cultural facial expression uh, when contempt is exhibited. That buccinator muscle, kind of the corner of the lip is pulled up a little bit. Um, it's, it's recognizable non-verbally as well as you can tell sometimes by the tone of the uh, message that one person sends to another. And of all of the predictors of divorce, contempt is the most toxic to relationships. In fact, it's actually predictive of the number of infectious diseases like, you know, colds that a person will get over the next four years when they are the recipient of contempt in their relationship. It's, it's like uh, Dr. Gutman calls it the sulfuric acid that just eats right through relationships. The third horseman is defensiveness. And... Uh, defensiveness really boils down to not taking responsibility for one's own behavior. And there's a couple ways to be defensive. Uh, one, and probably most typical, would be the counterattack. Attack. It's like the, oh, yeah, what about you response? So, you know, for example, uh, at my house, my, uh, quote, desk, unquote, is our dining room table. So I'll, I'll put my laptop on there, and I'll spread my stuff out there on the table. So if my wife said to me, could you straighten this stuff out uh, so we can have dinner here tonight on the table? And I said to her, oh, yeah? Well, what about all that stuff you've got piled up on the kitchen table? You've got five times more of your stuff on the kitchen table than I do on the dining room table, so where do you get off telling me to move my stuff on the dining room table here? 
know, that would be defensiveness. So even if it's factually true that she does have, you know, five times more stuff on the kitchen table, the antidote to defensiveness of taking some responsibility would be finding something in what she wants that I can accommodate or take responsibility for. So it would be, well, let me move this stuff out of the way now so we can have dinner, and how about on Saturday when I've got more time, I'll straighten the rest of this stuff up. And then if I have a, an issue with her stuff on the kitchen table, I would bring it up at a different time. Otherwise, I would be defensive. Because if I counterattack, what could happen would be in a typical couple. Uh, so if I said, you know, what about all that stuff on the kitchen table? And then she might say, oh, you want to see a real mess? What about all that stuff you've got piled up downstairs that you've been saying you're going to clean up for like five years? And then I could say, oh, well, you know, what about the visa bill last month? You know, and it just keeps escalating. And, you know, sometimes people forget what the original topic was in the first place because things just kind of spiral out of control. So the antidote, again, is to look for something, some, even a small piece. You don't have to admit to something that you, you know, didn't do, but usually there's something in there in the other person's request or complaint that you can find to take a little bit of responsibility for. And then the, the fourth horseman after criticism, contempt, defensiveness is stonewalling. And stonewalling is when a person is physically there, but they appear to the speaker to be checked out and disengaged. Sometimes body language, they even turn away from the person, and it's like you're talking to a stone wall. Um, interestingly, what's, what's really occurring when a person is stonewalling is that they are actually trying not to escalate conflict, but they are in this physiological uh, activated state, in this fight or flight or freeze state where the sympathetic division of their autonomic nervous system is activated and it's hard to think straight and solve problems clearly. So when they showed couples videotapes when one person was stonewalling and said, you know, what, what were you thinking then? They, they were thinking something like, uh, oh, I could say something. Nope, don't, don't say it. That'll really, oh, no, you know, and then it'll be, you know, usually in heterosexual relationships, like 85% of the time when somebody stonewalls, it's the guy. I mean, the research shows that men tend to be more physiologically uh, heightened arousal in stress than women. Oh, there's always gender differences. I mean, there's always uh, the reverse where sometimes that's the case in females. It also happens in same-sex couples as well. But, but anyway, so what, let's say the stereotypical guy is thinking is those things that I just mentioned. It's like he doesn't know what to say, so he doesn't say anything. He's in this state where he's kind of flooded with his own adrenaline, so the antidote uh, is to take a break, to get away and to say, I, I just need a little bit of time. I'll come back and talk with you later and then go do something that is uh, self-soothing, whatever that might be for the person to later come back and re-engage. So those are uh, 
some behavioral verbal patterns of behavior that are either helpful or in the case of these four horsemen, um, detrimental to relationships. Okay, so those are all great warning signs. Um, and I'm sure that everybody can recognize some of their own behavior in one or more of those things. So talk to us now about the flip side of that. You talk about uh, the masters of relationship and how they differ from the disasters. So what is it that the masters do that perpetuates a healthy relationship? Well, so let me go back to the love lap that I described uh, earlier. And this would be uh, true in other studies as well. So uh, when a couple got into an argument over something, uh, raiders uh, coding their behavior could code whether a person's response was a positive or negative response. So you can take a unit of time, you know, let's say uh, just for example, 10 minutes, and you could count the number of times they said something positive or the times that they said something negative in that conflict discussion and then calculate a rule of either positive to negative or negative to positive of those behaviors. Uh, and it turns out that couples who in, in this study uh, were still married uh, six years later had a ratio of five positives for every negative during this conflict discussion. So we often think, well, oh, whoops, that was kind of a zinger I just threw out there. I better say something a little more positive. It's actually that you'd have to do five positives for each negative just to get back to baseline. Couples who were divorced six years later had um, about a one-to-one -one ratio. It was slightly more negative. It was, um, you know, 0.8 to 1 uh, positive to negative. And then as we just described with these four horsemen, not all negative behaviors or verbalizations are equal. These four horsemen type are even more detrimental to relationships. When those couples were just hanging out uh, in general, they weren't engaged in any conflict discussion, the ratio of positive to negative among happy couples was 20 positives for every negative. So the, the kind of a take to the office or take home message is to be intentional in uh, trying to say things in a gentle way, to throw out some positives, like a positive would be, you know, that was a good point, that makes sense, I never actually thought about it that way, now that, now that I hear it that way, yeah, that kind of makes sense, kind of accepting influence would be a part of that. Um, that's one of the things that the masters of relationships do. Um, another thing that they're really good at doing is, despite their best efforts to be positive, sometimes things did start to escalate. And the masters of relationships were really good at what Dr. Gottman calls making a repair. And a repair would be anything that de-escalates the conflict and gets the conversation back on track in a reasonably productive kind of a way. So it could be something like, 
you know, we're getting off the subject and we get back on, on the topic, you know, direct like that. Or it could be um, sometimes people will break the tension by telling a joke and it just or, you know, making a funny face or something. It's just something that softens the tone and they kind of reset and get back on track in their discussion. The uh, disasters of relationships uh, are not very good at doing that. They continue to escalate conflict, and it builds, and it grows, and sometimes spirals in uh, a really negative kind of a way. So the kind of keeping track of trying to be as positive in the way you say things, that positive to negative ratio, um, and when things start to heat up to uh, – to try and get back on track and make a repair like that. Uh, so those are some of the main things that the masters of relationships uh, do uh, in their, the way that they talk to each other. But uh, underneath all of this, uh, because it's not just about managing conflict constructively, it's also building a foundation of a strong friendship. So strong relation, uh, the research on whether couples in therapy maintain their gains is also related to whether that therapy addresses the friendship foundation of the relationship. So in an office practice, for example, if the focus is on managing conflict constructively, that would be somewhat helpful. But in the context of building a friendship relationship among the staff, that is what promotes long-term gains. So examples of what he means by building friendship, he, he uses this word called you know, love maps in a marriage sense. And, and what, that, what that means is developing a deeper map in your mind of the other person's world. So like in an office, it would be developing uh, collegial maps of the people that work with, you know, how well do you know them both professionally, what their interests are, their technical expertise, what stresses them out in the office, what they like most and least their successes, as well as a little bit about them personally, Um, you know, who the significant people are in their lives, you know, where they live, you know, what their hobbies are, and of course, there's boundary issues in a professional office relationship. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, knowing each other well would be one of the components of friendship. Uh, another component of friendship would be um, a sense of fondness and admiration. It's like, do you think about the people in the office or at home in your personal relationships or friendships in fond and admiring ways? Um, do you look for those positive strengths? Uh, do you share positive feedback on a regular basis? I mean, that would be part of this fondness and admiration or providing positive feedback in an office sense. It's like one colleague uh, of mine does a lot of consulting with large corporations and law firms. And 
uh, one manager um, didn't really give much positive feedback to the people who worked for her. And her belief was that actions speak louder than words. So if she gave them a bonus or a pay raise or something, that ought, that ought to convey the message that uh, she liked them and they were doing well. And, and that is one part of it. But a lot of studies have shown that people will work much more for recognition and praise than they will for financial incentives. And so that would be part of this uh, piece on building the friendship foundation of a relationship uh, stronger. Um, And then there's a a third component, which Dr. Gottman calls turning toward versus turning away. So when the, the theory underneath this, so the concept underneath this is that in relationships, people make bids for connection with each other all the time. And sometimes those bids are obvious connections or, or obvious bids, and other times they're, they're subtle and may not even be recognized as a bid for connection. So, uh, you know, the obvious one would be, have you got a minute, or can I, you know, is this a good time? Can I talk to you about something? Or they start to engage or, you know, come here or in a more personal relationship, sit close to each other or touch each other. I mean, those are those are uh, more enthusiastic turning towards. But the more subtle ones would be, um, well, let's say on my way out the door this morning, if my wife said to me, did you hear on the news that, you know, such and such happened? I could either turn towards her by saying, yeah, I did, or no, what? It doesn't have to be a deep discussion, just basically acknowledging her. Or I could rush out the door and brush her off, uh, ignore her. That would be turning away. And once in a while, people snap back and they turn against. So in this example, turning against would be saying, uh, can't you see that I'm in a hurry? Don't bother me when I'm in a hurry. And then rush out the door. So uh, Dr. Gottman's observations show that Satisfied couples turn towards each each other a lot more, even in these little ways, that small things often cumulatively add up to make a big difference. One one study they did, they observed couples having dinner and uh, coded the amount of times, the percentage of times they turned towards each other or turned away from each other. And couples who were still married six years later turned towards each other almost all the time, 86% of the time, to be precise. And couples who were divorced six years later, when they looked at that conflict, that conflict, just that dinner time discussion, they only turned towards each other a third of the time, 33% of the time. So they still do, but not nearly as much. So imagine the difference between almost all the time and a third of the time multiplied day in, day out, cumulatively it adds up to make a big difference. So just these small things, these small greetings, these small checkouts, I know that dental offices are very busy places and there often isn't time for extended discussions. 
but even just those little brief encounters can put points in the, uh, the, the relational bank account here. So Dave, in that particular case, you know, you mentioned a statistic uh, earlier on that in, in the category of stonewalling, that 85% of the time men were responsible for stonewalling compared to women. Yeah. In that particular area, it has to do with turning towards versus turning away or turning against. Is there any ratio there of what you find men versus women doing, or is it even across the board? You know, I'm not aware of any specific studies that have statistics on that, so um, I, I don't know precisely. I, my sense would be that would be across the board. I don't, I don't know that there would be a gender difference in turning toward or turning away. Uh, it's more when there's that physiological component that the gender difference might come more into play than – I mean, you could turn away when you're when you're flooded and overwhelmed physically. That certainly be the case, but the kind of turning toward or turning away that uh, I think he refers to isn't so much a physiological basis, just a how you interact or don't with each other during right. uh, the course of your lives. What I found interesting about what you've you know this is all fascinating to me because there's a big part of what we really talk about and work on in the Crown Council, but one of the, the points I find that's fascinating to me is the behavior in conflict versus the behavior in non-conflict situations. While it's similar, but yet it's, it's also different, that there's conflict behaviors that are predictive of the longevity of the relationship. Yes. So in that, in that area, um, Dave, are there commonly held what we call mistaken certainties in, in, you know, the characteristics of a relationship, things that most people say, well, yeah, to have a good relationship, you have to, you know, you have to do these things that in your research you just did not find to be the case that didn't really have uh, yes. anything to do with the longevity. What are those? Yes, there are several myths about relationships. So one would be the uh, quid pro quo which basically is if uh, you're doing something nice for me, I'll do something nice for you uh, so that you could determine the relationships, uh, you know, that that would build a happy relationship basically when couples are engaging in the you scratch my back so I'll scratch your back. Uh, it turns out that that is not a predictor of marital relationship success is actually more that couples or in distress relationships keep score. Uh, couples in satisfying relationships don't keep score. So there isn't so much that, uh, you know, quid pro quo kind of dynamic going on. Uh, you know, an, another myth is that gender differences cause divorce. You know, if we stop and think about that, uh, in heterosexual relationships, we're talking about that, um, you know, obviously the happily married couples have gender differences just like the ones who get divorced. So while there are some gender differences, like we talked about in terms of physiological arousal, um, and that can be a divorce predictor on how you deal with that, 
But in general, it isn't that there's this big gender divide that is the cause or contributor to uh, divorce, basically. Uh, see, um, how about active listening? Yeah, so I mean that's that's what I was trained in. Uh, in fact, John Gottman actually wrote a book along with several others called A uh, Couple's Guide to Communication. I think it was something like that a number of years ago, which emphasized active listening as the sort of the panacea for a successful relationship. And the research on that shows that that really isn't what contributes to successful relationships. Now, there's a little asterisk on that that I'll come back to in a minute. The the idea in that approach is that what you would say to somebody who's really mad at you is you're reflecting back and trying to empathize with their anger at you. It, it turns out that it's nearly impossible to do that when you feel like you're under attack. And so that doesn't really work very well. I suppose if you could do that, it would be helpful. It's just really difficult to do that. It's not impossible. On the other hand, when you're listening to each other and it's not in the middle of a big conflict and you're trying to be supportive, then this active listening where you would paraphrase back what you heard the other person say and particularly the emotions that they're feeling, then that definitely can deepen the relationship and strengthen it as well. So it kind of depends on what context we're talking about, uh, about how helpful or not this uh, active listening is. Uh, Got it. You know, there's some, other, uh, there's some other myths, like common interests keep you together. Well, it helps, of course, to have things in common. On the other hand, how many times have you observed other couples that are doing something together? You know, they're going on a hike, and they are not happy hikers because they are yelling at each other, engaging in presumably what is a common interest. Or, you know, imagine uh, people at Disneyland, you know, the happiest place on earth. You know, not everybody (laughs) at the happiest place on earth is happy in their relationships, it isn't just that they're enjoying this common experience. It could be if you have a strong foundation, a strong friendship, then those things are meaningful, but not necessarily in and of themselves. You know, it's like, it's like um, people often think that the way to build your marriage stronger, and I, I think there are probably some applications, uh, if you can stretch it a little bit in an office setting, is is that if you do nice, really thoughtful things or in a romantic uh, context, uh, you know, romantic things. So let's say the relationship's not going very good, and so the couple say, okay, well, we're going to turn this around. So they go out to a nice uh, dinner, and let's suppose he gives her a locket with his picture in it. Okay, so... The question is, is this going to be a romantic moment here? So if we go back to the Friendship Foundation, Love Maps, and she's thinking, you know, he doesn't know me hardly at all. He hasn't asked me questions about what's going on in my life. He, he's checked out or all he talks about is himself. 
And so love maps, you know, not good. How much affection is there between them? How much does he express uh, appreciation and thankfulness for her, compliments her? And she's going, you know, that doesn't happen. And then when she makes bids for connection, he turns away from her. And then he gives her a locket with his picture in this. <laughs> is this going to be a romantic moment? You know, she might not. want to you know, throw it on the parking lot and back over it a couple times with the SUV here. On the other hand, if the reverse is true and they have a strong connection, they share their lives with each other, they ask questions, their love maps are well-developed, they express appreciation and compliment and thankfulness to each other, and they turn towards each other most of the time, and then he gives her this locket with his picture in it, it probably will become one of her most cherished possessions, and that will be a deeply intimate and romantic moment. So it's the context that sets the stage. So think of the application in an office setting here where, uh, same thing, if um, you try and do something that you think is a nice thing for someone that works in the office for you, but the foundation of these dimensions of friendship isn't very well present, it's not going to be nearly as appreciated as it is if the whole tone of the office in general is a positive one characterized by expressing appreciation and compliments, bringing up in the conflict area, bringing up issues in a gentle way and trying to avoid these four horsemen, then they feel good in general about the office and those special things that you do for them just deepen their appreciation and gratitude for being able to work in a wonderful place like this. So mm, good. You know, that was, that's, that's invaluable insight. That's really, really, really good. Yeah. And so, again, I'll come back. Oh, well, if I can just reinforce the small things often, little comments, appreciations here and there, over time, cumulatively add up and do make a big, big difference. Here. So, Huge. So All right, one, so Dave, oh, um, yeah, oh, go ahead. Well, that's okay. Um, there's, there's one thing I would like to mention before we close, Steve, in the area of conflict that hasn't come up yet that I think is okay. really important. So if I can mention that for a couple minutes here. And that is in... Some of Dr. Gottman's longitudinal studies where he would have the couples come in every four years to see how they were doing. And one of the things he did is just videotape them having a discussion about what the current issues that they see in their relationship are. And then after they left, he would look at the videotape of that discussion this time. And then he would watch the videotape of that same discussion the last time they were in. And what he found is that most of the time they were talking about the same issues this time that they were last time, and sometimes even the time before that. So then when they looked at each couple's specific issues, what they found was that 69% of the problems that these couples have are perpetual problems that they're never going to solve. Now that sounds pretty discouraging, except that happy couples also have the vast majority of their issues that they're never going to solve either. 
So satisfaction in this relationship depends on two things. You know, can you live with your perpetual problem? But most typically, it's how do you talk about and how do you deal with that perpetual problem? So the implications of this are pretty profound in that the issues that you have among staff in the office, some of those are perpetual issues that are never going to change because it's a result of different personality styles, different ways of thinking, different ways of doing things. And just like in a marriage relationship, that is pretty much par for the course. But if you can implement these other positive qualities that we've been talking about in this discussion, then those perpetual problems don't contribute to anything really negative in the relationship in the long run. So sometimes when I talk to premarital couples about this, they go, you mean we don't have to solve all of our problems to have a happy marriage or even with uh, long-term couples? No, you don't. You just have to be able to talk about it in constructive ways. That is, that's a huge insight. Because so often we think we have to solve every problem, especially if guys think we've got to solve every problem. That's huge. Yeah, well, yeah, well, you know, if you didn't marry the person that you are with now and you'd married somebody else, you probably wouldn't have exactly the same perpetual problems, but for sure you'd have another set of perpetual problems. Right. So think about that in the office. You know, if uh, one of your staff people, you know, problem, problem people in the office left um, or this annoying thing that is irritating to you, well, if I just replace them with somebody else, well, that somebody else is going to come with their set of differences between how they do things and think in you too. I mean, certainly you can talk through those differences, and that's the whole point. But just replacing the person isn't – unless the person is uh, clearly not meeting performance standards or is not able to engage with patients in a constructive way or other staff members, you know, then, of course, that needs to be dealt with. But uh, – you know, the norm, the par for the course is these perpetual problems. It's, again, focusing on being uh, positive in the way that you deal with those problems. That's the key to longer-term office uh, peace and productive working relationships. Perfect. Uh, Dave, you know, to wrap could... up, um, maybe yeah. you could share with us three things that we could do, that all of us could do immediately, whether it's couples or in an office situation, that we could do immediately that would improve our relationships? Well, so number one, I would think of this concept of turning towards and just being mindful of these small bids for connection and making these bids for connection in order to deepen a foundation of a relationship. So, you know, that would be probably uh, one of those things. Um, I mean, this is maybe a kind of uh, second thing would be to A, B, C, D, which would be working on these four horsemen, the antidotes to the four horsemen. Uh, particularly defensiveness is really difficult for uh, I think pretty much everyone and looking for that one part of 
what can I own up to in what they request? And a related concept that we didn't talk about in that much, actually I didn't name it, is, is this notion of accepting influence, which would be this attitude of, uh, you know, in your self-talk, you know, what can I do to accommodate your request? What part of that is reasonable rather than, oh, no, here we go again. Now what does they, you know, he want, or now what does she want, which is this uh, position of not accepting influence. So that would be a, another uh, key. And then I think it, just expressing appreciation, um, positive reinforcement, I mean, not effusive over-the-top praise, but noticing small things and making those small comments about those things, um, that's what I would uh, work on to begin to uh, change the culture of the relationship or relationships uh, even more positive than they already are. So if I could point out some, some resources, the, yes, uh, please do. you know, Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N.com website has a lot of resources and particularly relevant to Crown Council members just over this past Labor Day weekend, uh, appropriately enough time, is a new relationship blog on focusing these research-based principles for couples into the workplace setting. So if you just go to GottmanBlog.com, uh, then you can click on the one that is the sound relationship workplace. Um, and there have been uh, four entries, and there will be uh, pretty much every week a new entry tying this into the workplace. So that would be another recommendation. And then the, the last, the third one would be of all of the books that Dr. Gottman has written, the one that's most practically helpful and useful is called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Uh, it's one of those books that has withstood the test of time. It was first published in 1999 and has been in the top 1% of Amazon sales and in honor of its one millionth sale of a paperback edition, they revised it and re, uh, um, revamped it and improved it and it was just published in May of this year. Uh, so that would be the book that would be for personal relationships and these concepts that could be applied in a work context as well. So Dave, this has been a fascinating time together. You have communicated so well and so much content here. I know that everybody that's listened is going to go back and re-listen to this several times. It's been a huge help. So thank you very much for sharing your many, many decades' worth of research and wisdom and suggestions, and also for the resources that will be invaluable to all of us um, moving forward. So thank you so much for your willingness to share today and for being You're very around. welcome, Steve. Thank you You're so very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you.